Well, good evening, good to see you. We're going to read again this evening in the book of Isaiah and chapter 2. We'll read a little further into the chapter this evening. We read the first part of it last evening. We'll read a little more tonight. Isaiah chapter 2, we'll read at verse 1. The word that Isaiah the son of Amos saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. And it shall come to pass in the last days that the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established in the top of the mountains, and shall be exalted above the hills, and all nations shall flow unto it. Now we just pause for a moment there, just to make a comment as we're reading. You will see from verse 1 that it is a, uh, a burden concerning Judah and Jerusalem. Judah, remember, was the southern kingdom. After the division of the nation of Israel, it was the southern kingdom. Uh, by the time, as Isaiah looks ahead by the Spirit of God, at the time he's looking at, the northern kingdom will have gone into Assyrian captivity, so he's looking at Judah and their relationship with Jerusalem. He's looking at the near thing. And yet the very next verse is describing things which didn't and weren't fulfilled when Judah was recovered from its captivity. The, the point simply is this, that what you will find in Isaiah's prophecy is very often the immediate historical thing is spoken of in the same breath as a yet future thing for the entire nation. And that's something that Isaiah does frequently, guided by the Spirit of God. So he tells us in verse 1, it's about Judah and Jerusalem, it's about current day things as Isaiah writes, and yet the very next verse, verse 2, tells us about a wonderful day when Jerusalem will be recovered and restored and the nations of the earth shall flow unto it. That has never been fulfilled yet, it is still future. Verse 3, many people shall go and say, come ye and let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, and he will teach us of his ways, and we will walk in his paths, for out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. Isaiah speaks more than any other writer of Zion. And when you read of Zion, you're reading about the city of God as God intends it one day to be. It's the thought of Jerusalem glorified. And so Isaiah speaks of Zion more than any other writer. And he says, out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. Verse 4, and he shall judge among the nations and shall rebuke many people. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares, their spears into pruning hooks. We made the point briefly on Lord's Day morning. This is the thought of bread and of wine. The plowshare to prepare the ground for the corn. The pruning hook to prepare the vine to be fruitful. Bread and wine in view. That fellowship which the Lord Jesus was thinking of in Luke chapter 22. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation. Neither shall they learn war anymore. O house of Jacob, come ye and let us walk in the light of the Lord. Let's walk in the light of the Lord. Now he turns his attention from verses 6 to 9 to addressing God. He's addressed Judah. Now the prophet is speaking, as it were, to God himself. Therefore thou hast forsaken thy people, the house of Jacob, because they be replenished from the east and are soothsayers like the Philistines. And they please themselves in the children of strangers. Their land also is full of silver and gold, neither is there any end of their treasures. Their land is also full of horses, neither is there any end of their chariots. Their land also is full of idols. They worship the work of their own hands, that which their own fingers have made. 
And the mean man, that is, the common man, the humble man, bows down, that is, to the idols. And the great man, the prince, humbles himself before the idols. Therefore, forgive them not. And that's where we will leave the reading tonight in Isaiah chapter 2. We will conclude the chapter in the will of God tomorrow evening. Why does Isaiah turn so abruptly away from uh, things concerning the future glory of Jerusalem and its being seen as the uh, nation that is administering the earth? Why does he turn so abruptly away from that and speak to God about the state of the people? Well, something that doesn't seem to occur to the rulers in most countries today is that number one they are ruling under the permission and the will of God when this period of time in which we're living uh, began that is the time of the Gentiles the time when Gentile nations would be in the ascendancy and Israel would be set aside when that time began God took the first great Gentile potentate, that man called Nebuchadnezzar, uh, a man who had really, in one sense, universal dominion. The known world was under his sway. Daniel makes a very simple statement about him. He said, whomsoever he would, he slew. And whomsoever he would, he kept alive. He was not the sort of man you wanted to disappoint. He didn't have to refer to a senate, he didn't have to refer to a government, he had absolute, total, despotic sway. But that man was humbled, that man was made for seven years to be like a beast of the field. And God humbled him. He told him, through Daniel, that he would do that, but within a course of just one short year, Daniel chapter 4, after Daniel had had that dream of a mighty tree growing up and filling the earth and then being cut down to the stump. The dream was explained to him, Daniel, that tree is you, uh, Nebuchadnezzar, that tree is you. And your power and your influence and your greatness and your, your authority is going to fill the known world. But Nebuchadnezzar, God is going to cut you down. In view of all that had gone before in that man's experience, you'd have thought he would have listened. I'm sure he probably did listen. And yet the book of Daniel tells us that just one year later, the man is walking in the temple of the city of Babylon. And he puffs out his little chest. And he says, this great Babylon that I have built. Look what I have done. It's all down to me. I've built this, and I'm in charge of it, and there's nobody can challenge me at all. And in that very moment, God made that man to become like a beast. And for seven years, for seven years, he ate grass like an ox, he lived outdoors, his hair grew like the feathers of a bird, his nails grew like the talons of a bird. He was just an insane maniac living like a beast. And the reason God did it was so that Nebuchadnezzar would learn that the Most High ruleth in the kingdoms of men and he sets over them whomsoever he will. That has never changed. The setting up of kings and of princes and of nations and of empires has always been in the hand of God and it always will be. Nebuchadnezzar was restored. God brought him back to his senses and he brought him back to his throne, and he brought him back to his empire. And from that day on, Nebuchadnezzar worshipped the God of heaven. What a tremendous thing to have happened. And one of the things that God was teaching that man, and the reason why Nebuchadnezzar was singled out, was because he was the first of what was going to be a succession of Gentile powers. He was the first. So God would set an example with him. 
And one of the things God was teaching that man was this. If he is going to exercise rule under the hand of God, the man that will exercise rule must be morally fit to exercise that rule. It's not just a matter of position. It's not just a matter of power. The man is to be morally fit to bear that office. You look around you today, I would certainly not presume to make any comment on the affairs of this nation, but certainly of my country. We have seen a marked degradation in the standards of public office, I would say in the last 15 or 20 years. In fact, in our previous government, one of the, one of the senior men in the government was caught out in immorality and in financial scandal and the Prime Minister said of him what he does in private has no bearing on his public office and as soon as you hear a thing like that you realize that the government of the nation is morally bankrupt instead of immediately firing him instead of the man not needing to be fired he should have walked away with his head hanging in shame but not at all they'll just brazen it out but God's standard has never changed. If a man will bear rule under God, he must be morally fit to bear that. The one place that God is today absolutely insistent that that is true is a local assembly of Christians. And that's why 1 Timothy chapter 3 is so detailed in the moral virtues of men who would bear rule in the house of God. The principle follows right through, doesn't it? Whether it's in an empire, whether it is the nation of Israel ruling the kingdoms of the earth, whether it's a man as the head of his house, whether it is overseers, responsible for the welfare of a local assembly God's standard has never changed the man who bears rule must be morally qualified to do so why are we emphasizing that point so much because when we come back to Isaiah chapter 2 the reason perhaps why Isaiah switches so rapidly and markedly away from a consideration of the glory of Jerusalem in a day to come is because the people who will reign in Jerusalem and who will administer the earth in that day as Isaiah is speaking the people responsible for that are far from being morally fit for the job. And so he speaks to God about them. And, and like Daniel does, and like Jeremiah does, and like Nehemiah does, these men were big men, and they identified themselves with the failure of the nation. And Isaiah speaks to God about the people, and he says, this is the reason, the word therefore is there, therefore. So what he's about to say has its cause and its reason in what he's just said. And what he has just said is that Israel will be at the head of the nations. And Israel will be glorified in a refurbished Jerusalem. Therefore, because of the fact that they will rule, thou hast forsaken thy people, the house of Jacob. He's looking at the reason why the northern kingdom has got, uh, or is about to go, is falling into Assyrian captivity. He's looking at the reason why Judah will go into Babylonian captivity. And he is recognizing as he speaks to God, he says this is the reason why these people are going into captivity and why they are knowing divine punishment upon them. The reason is because they are not morally fit today for the glorious future that awaits them. Here's a man who knows something of the character of God. What does he say about them? Well, he said, they have, they have become filled with eastern ways. 
That's really the thought in verse number 6. They have been replenished from the east. They are full of eastern ways and soothsayers like the Philistines. And they, they please themselves or they abound in the children of strangers. In these three little statements what Isaiah is confessing is this. These people, the people of God who are destined for such earthly glory these people have made themselves of no distinction from the uh, from the spirit worshipping ungodly Gentile nations around them. They have filled themselves with the ways of the people of the East. These people who, who are taught by prophets the mind of God nevertheless are going to the soothsayers like the Philistines do and they're more at home in the company of strangers than they are amongst the people of God but I pause there dear brethren and sisters because we were speaking last evening and we're going to speak more this evening as God gives us help that not only is the nation of Israel destined for earthly government not only is the nation of Israel destined to be gloriously restored and put at the head of the nations again so that the millennial earth is governed from Jerusalem and these people will be the government they will be the ministers they will be the administrators if these people are awaiting such earthly glory and yet they are going to be divinely punished because they are morally unfit to hold that office what of us who are destined to bear the responsibility of government in the heavens you see this idea that those who will bear office under God must be morally fit for that office that doesn't exclude the church it's a divine principle it's a statement about the very character of God if God is going to bring such chastisement upon a people who are not fit for the privileged future that they have then how do, how do we square up to that we're destined for government we're destined for glory and, and, and notice this it's, Isaiah is not saying well now as he spoke the millennial kingdom was at least 2,700 years away he's not saying the people 2,700 years away are not fit he's saying the people today are not fit the representatives of the nation today are not fit for the glory that will be displayed in the future so the glory that's displayed in the future in the church brings a responsibility to you and me today what God intends for us in the future should mark the way we walk today we ask the question solemnly before God are we morally fit for it? this is the season back home when the the major political parties have their conferences these little sort of uh, festival weeks that they have down at the south and tell each other how good they are and I think this week if I'm not mistaken is the, is the turn of the, uh, the Conservative Party loosely equivalent to your Republicans a couple of weeks ago the, the Liberal Party, the Liberal Democrats they, they had a turn and uh, years ago I remember it happening but years ago uh, in the fervor of the final speech their leader said to them at their, um, at their annual convention bearing in mind this was a party that enjoyed something like 9 or 10 percent of the popular vote and he said to them in the fervor of his final speech now away you go and prepare for government well you could hear the howls of laughter from one end of the nation to the other prepare for government they hadn't got a hope 
But I was thinking of it earlier today, that statement. If we were to say to a, a company like this of God's believing people, away you go and prepare for government. Would we be laughed at? Would we even laugh at ourselves? Do, do we have a sense of occasion and of dignity that, that not just the people who are yet to be born, but you and I, will take part in the government of God? And one of the things that sickens people in my country and yours is when people hold high office and they have the kind of attitude that says don't do what I do, do as I say here are laws that we are formulating and they apply to you but, but ourselves effectively we're above the law and nothing will erode public confidence and public respect for an individual or a party nothing will erode it faster than when they see that the men who are in charge are not morally qualified to be there. I come back to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Know ye not that we shall judge angels? Know ye not that the saints will judge the world? There would never have been a higher dignity or office bestowed upon the children of men than that which has been and will be bestowed upon us. Are we morally qualified? Are we living in the good of that? Living in the light of that? We could bring so many examples out, you can think of them yourself. The kind of training that, that, that people would go through, perhaps on the corporate ladder, perhaps in the military, perhaps in public service. And those who are going to be leaders are told things like this. We used to tell those who were going to be leaders in our military, we can train you to do the things that you don't yet know how to do. We can teach you skills that you don't yet have. But we cannot form character in you. If you're not honest, we can't make you honest. If you lack courage, we can't make you courageous. If by character you are a liar, we cannot make you truthful. We can give you skills, but we can't give you character. But God says, there must be people with character who rule. So forgive me, my beloved brethren and sisters, if I seem to be laboring this too much. But one day we're going to rule. And just as Isaiah spoke to the people of the day, he spoke to God about them, the people of the day, about their great deficiencies and shortcomings, they lacked the dignity. They, 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 it was clear that though he had just spoken about a future glory for this nation, it was clear that the people of the day didn't believe it. It was clear by their life they didn't believe it. And if I were to ask, well, do we believe that one day we're going to reign with Christ? Of course we do. But here's the big question. Do we live like it? Do we believe this enough? In other words, do we believe it really? To such an extent that it affects the way we live today. Preparing for government. Ready to go to be with Christ. Ready not just to rule over the nations of the earth, but over the very angelic powers themselves. We're going to judge angels, and we're going to judge the world. They had lost their distinctiveness in verse number 6. When you looked at the people of God in Isaiah's day, it was very difficult when it came to the way in which they assessed the future things and God's purpose for them it would have been very difficult to tell them from the Gentiles round about them full of eastern ways consulting the soothsayers 
fully at home in the midst of strangers. They'd lost their distinctiveness. What had caused that perhaps? Well, verse 7 tells us, Their land, notice the repetition of the little word also, Their land also is full of silver and gold. Neither is there end of their treasures. Their land is also full of horses. Neither is there any end of their chariots. Their land also is full of idols. The picture that Isaiah confesses to God is of a people who are prosperous, who are comfortable, who are protected, and who've got everything just as they want it. They're comfortable now. Isaiah is going to speak to them in just a few moments. He's going to speak to them as to how they are going to go down into bondage and they're going to go into misery and they're going to go into servitude and their hearts are going to be broken. But it seems they're just living for the moment. They're not taking any thought for the fact that they serve and belong to a God who's about to visit them in judgment. It's almost as though they're saying, well, we're the people. <laughs> God's going to judge the Gentiles and boy, do they deserve it. And yet they were so complacent they had lost sight of the fact that they were living like the very Gentiles themselves. What well, can I say very tenderly but firmly? God expects Gentiles to live like Gentiles, that's what they are. And he expects his people to live like his people. He did then, he does now. There's no condemnation that they're prosperous. There's no condemnation that they have silver and gold and treasures and horses and chariots and all these things. After all, whatever they have is in the goodness of God. That's not the problem. But the problem is that this has led to a form of idolatry where they worship the work of their own hands which their own fingers have made. And they have fallen into this trap just as Nebuchadnezzar did, just as their fathers did before them, or rather just as Nebuchadnezzar would do in later years, just as their, as their fathers had done in the past, and just as you and I can well do today. That things are comfortable, things are just moving along nicely. We have this kind of, co we have this kind of glow on the horizon, just as they did. One day Jerusalem will be glorified. Oh, that's really nice. Yeah, that's good. Good, good, good. Thanks. If you don't mind, I'm busy. And the reality of it had not, had not penetrated them. The reality of it was not being felt by them. And it was clear that they hadn't got the reality of this doctrine because they weren't living in a way that was appropriate. And consequently, God is going to cast them aside. This had gone from the mean, the humble man, right the way through to the princes of the people. It was across all the ranks, it was across all the strata of society. God's people were prosperous, they were content, they held a doctrine that one day there would be glory. But they weren't prepared to make that doctrine make them live in a distinctive way. When it's put like that, it almost sounds depressingly familiar, doesn't it? See, my dear brethren, please, you understand. We're not here to throw knives at the saints, not at all. And whatever degree of prosperity and a material benefit God has graciously given to us, we thank him for it. We acknowledge it comes from him. But what God expects us to see is that with these things there comes a great danger. It's there in the heart of every man and woman, a great danger to suppose that it is all down to us. We become complacent. We lose sight of the reality of these things. Of course we believe the Lord could come today. Of course we believe we're going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ. 
Of course we believe that this world is going to be absolutely shattered in tribulation judgment. Of course we believe the Lord is going to descend in power and great glory and we're going to reign with him. But is it too brutal to suggest that it's really sometimes for us only theory? The sort of thing where we like to sit back in our respective armchairs and we debate the fine detail. Will it be like this or will it be like that? And in the meantime, we lose the whole thrust of the whole thing. Which is the prospect of future things is designed to make me live differently today. How real is it to me? How real is it to you? We thought last evening a little, didn't we, of the tremendous changes that are going to take place in this world. How that God is going to change the very heavens and the earth. We mentioned the verse, Matthew, 19, uh, Matthew chapter 19, verse 28. The Lord Jesus speaking to Peter about the regeneration. That time when, as he, the Son of Man, returns to the earth to establish his kingdom... And he comes to an earth that is shattered by divine judgment. There will be a wonderful act of recreation that will remodel the existing heavens and earth to prepare it for the millennial kingdom. The earth will be changed. The nation of Israel, the survivors of it, they will be changed. Ezekiel speaks of it in chapter 36, Jeremiah speaks of it in chapter 31, Isaiah will speak of it later from chapter 40 onwards. They will speak about this tremendous change that when, once the nation, driven in, back into the arms of their God, once they truly repent, God says, I'm going to purge your sins, I'm going to give you a new heart, I'm going to pour out the Holy Spirit upon you. The nation is going to be born in a day. The covenant, the basis of which the Lord Jesus laid in his own blood. That covenant which he spoke about in Luke chapter 22. That covenant will come into being in that day. The new covenant. Yes, the nation's going to be changed. It will need to be, and it will be, to fit it for earthly government. But what about you and me? What about you and me? Let's think about that for a while. Should the Lord come today for the church? And he could. Should the Lord come today? And in that moment we're swept up into heaven. The church will be at home with Christ. I don't know how many people that will take from the face of the earth. One thing we do know is that the vast majority of the body of Christ... Their souls are already there. They're in the presence of Christ. Their bodies are in graves or perhaps in the ocean or perhaps those dear saints of God who in previous days and even some today who are being martyred in dreadful ways. Bodies burned, consumed by beasts, all the different ways in which the saints of God have perished over the years. And in one glorious, wonderful, tremendous burst of divine power, the dead in Christ shall rise. We're familiar with the words, aren't we? But pause to reflect upon the tremendous power of God in resurrection. Paul speaks of it in Ephesians chapter 1. That same power that he exercised when he raised Christ from the dead. And then he starts chapter 2 and he says, And you have he quickened who were dead in trespasses and sins. But one day all who have died in Christ, in the dispensation that began when the Spirit of God came down at Pentecost, every believer who has died since Pentecost, at the moment the Lord comes to the air, raised gloriously from the dead the dead in Christ shall rise first then we which are alive and remain unto the coming of the Lord we shall be caught up 
Paul tells the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 15 that what will happen in a moment in the twinkling of an eye is that we shall be changed. You see, my dear brother, my dear sister, again we've maybe lost the wonder of it, but you and I are totally ready for heaven today. Except for these bodies being changed. That's all. Judicially, in the sight of God, that is, in relation to our state as sinners, that's all being dealt with. We don't need to worry, as some say, well, what happens if I have unconfessed sin when the Lord comes to the air? All our sins have been forgiven. That doesn't give us license to live loosely, of course, you understand that. But all our sins have been forgiven. There's going to be nothing else to do with our sins. We're as ready for heaven judicially today as we shall ever be. All that is necessary is for these bodies to be changed. And they're going to be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, and they're going to be fashioned, the Bible says, like unto his own body of glory. What does that mean? Well, number one, it means that we won't need any clothing. I'm not being at all flippant, please don't think that. Remember that when the Lord Jesus was buried, and those tender hands of Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea, they reached up and they, they tenderly took the, the Lord's body down from the cross. And they wrapped him in linen. And they had a hundredweight of spices. And they took the body and they laid it tenderly in the tomb. But when on the first day of the week, Peter and John came to the tomb, beheld the stone rolled away, and as they went into the tomb, the first thing they noticed was this, the body wasn't there, but the grave clothes were. So very reverently, we simply ask the question, how was the Lord clothed when he came out of the tomb? His earthly clothes, the last garments that he had on earth, his grave clothes were still there. And the napkin folded and put in a separate place. But when the Lord Jesus appeared to Mary, and when he appeared to the two on the road to Emmaus, and when he appeared in the upper room, and when he was seen of above 500 brethren all at once, he would have appeared to them as though he was clothed in the ordinary garments of the day. But he wasn't. A bit like when Abraham, sitting in his tent in the heat of the day, and he looks out and he sees three men coming. There were men to him, but two were angels, and one was the, the Son of God in pre-incarnate form. So the first thing really about the Lord Jesus when he came out of the tomb, his, his resurrection body, now it was the same body that was laid in the tomb, nothing mysterious about that. The body that was laid in the tomb was the body that was raised. He's only got one body. But his body, in which he had tabernacled here amongst men, had now been changed and fitted for taking into heaven. There's nothing wrong with it. You'll understand what I'm saying. But he was the prototype, you see. He was, he was the first fruits of a tremendous harvest. And the Lord Jesus took glorified humanity into heaven. And your body and mine is going to be like that. A body of glory. Not this body of humiliation, Paul says to the Philippians, but a body of glory. And changed like unto his own body of glory. And, and another thing is, of course, that the Lord Jesus in his body of glory... Well, he just appeared in the upper room where the disciples were gathered for fear of the Jews and the doors were locked. So although it was the same body that was laid in the tomb that was raised, he was no longer subject to the limitations of the physical laws of this world. We've occasionally chuckled over the memory of it. But when I was a boy in the city of Plymouth in, in, in the south of England and we used to hear the men preaching about the coming of the Lord and how everybody would be snatched up and away. 
the lady who was my Sunday school teacher was quite a large lady a very sweet lady, a very dear lady a very young widow like most of the sisters the young sisters in the assembly in Wolseley Road in Plymouth the majority of them had lost their men in the second world war and she was a relatively young widow and uh, she was quite a, quite a stout lady well I used to think and my simple little boyish mind you see used to listen to this the, the Lord's coming and, and these bodies will be snatched away and I was I suppose more used to reading the comics than I was my Bible at that age so I had visions in my own stupid head I had visions that if the Lord did come at that very moment there would be holes in the roof of the gospel hall you know like spread eagle bodies the shapes of people and I used to look at my dear Sunday school teacher Mrs. Shaw and I used to think boy she's going to make some hole in that ceiling if the Lord comes to take her now you know and it wasn't, it wasn't meant irreverently it was just the way maybe a five or six year old boy's mind worked on the thing but of course if the Lord were to come at this very moment the instantaneous thing is the change of the body in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, changed. Bodies changed like his own body of glory. His body was not limited by what we think are inviolable physical laws. I take a run at that wall, I'm going to hurt myself. But if the Lord came in a moment, this body would be immediately changed. And perhaps this, this building would offer it no restriction at all. Glorified body taken into heaven. Really done and the only evidence that the good folk of Midland Park would have that ever there were Christians in this hall I'm going to be needing these in heaven and I guess the fillings and some of you maybe with things to help you here and all kinds of other things that help our infirmities all left behind Everybody changed in a moment, glorified, fashioned like unto his own body of glory. It's real, isn't it? But you know, the very fact that it is changed like unto his own body of glory is because we then are going to shift location from, heaven to, from earth to heaven. These bodies we have at the moment are suited for this environment. But they're going to be changed to be suited to that environment. That's not mystical. It's just real. So then, we shall stand immediately in heaven with Christ. Relationships will have changed. Everything will be new and different. We will see him face to face. We will be there in the glory of heaven with Christ. Now, <laughs> it's difficult to say, isn't it, that at some time the judgment seat of Christ will take place because there won't be any time there isn't time in heaven it's eternal God is eternal beyond that my head melts I just know that time will be ticking away here on earth but there won't be any time in heaven and so the prospect of every Christian having a one-on-one -on -one interview with the Lord Jesus Christ and the whole life since he saved us being reviewed have you ever thought of that? see again in my ignorance I used to, I used to think as a younger fellow well you know this, this judgment seat of Christ business is going to be dreadful because the brethren used to say well the word in the Greek is Bema and, and the word Bema is used in the Greek version of the Old Testament of the time when Ezra stood up on a pulpit of wood and, and read the scriptures to all the people and I used to think oh no this is going to be desperate because I'm going to get to heaven and then it's going to be like a great big parade square and sooner or later my name's going to be called and I'm going to have to get up there and the whole of my life since I got saved is going to be revealed to all of you What do you think about it? Have you thought about it? Thank God it's not going to be that. Remember when John in, in, in Revelation chapter 1 saw the Lord Jesus? He saw him in millennial glory. And one of the things John said about the Lord Jesus in Revelation 1, 
He said his eyes were like a flame of fire. They were like a flame of fire because, because it was the kind of gaze that would just consume everything that was false. In fact, Paul says to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 3, doesn't he? He says that, that when we stand and we have to stand at the judgment seat of Christ and we have to give account as to what we have built in individually into the local assemblies where we are, we will have to account for how we used our resources and our time and how precious the local assembly was to us and the Lord will want to know if it was so, so precious that I died for it, why did you count it so lightly? And Paul says that everything we've done is that which is like wood, hay and stubble. Bulky but consumable. There's that which is like precious stones. But he said, he said, we shall be saved so as by fire. Now he doesn't mean that Christians are going to go through the fire. He's not saying that at all. And there's no possibility whatsoever that Christians will get to heaven and be lost. No chance at all. He's talking about the review of our works and, and, our, and what we have done tested by the fire of the gaze of the Lord Jesus himself. I think of times when something had cracked off at home and I was one of five kids and we became very adept very, very clever at... Um, Framing our brothers and sisters. So you felt you had a pretty cast iron alibi. For whatever had happened. My dad would just stand and look at us. And you felt that when he looked at you in that way. That he was. He knew exactly what had gone on. That gaze just seemed to strip away. All the falsity. How much more it will be when he looks upon me ah we love to sing we love to think face to face with Christ my saviour face to face what will it be when with rapture I behold him or we love to think we'll get to heaven and we'll look upon him but remember dear brother dear sister when we get to heaven he's going to look upon us and as the hymn writer says that kind but searching scan those eyes are going to look upon the whole review of my life since I trusted Christ and strip away all that is false. I'll be changed by that. I'll heartily agree and concur and understand all that goes on. But at the end of that process, that review process, Paul and Peter, the Old Testament, the New Testament writers, they make it very clear that 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 at the judgment seat of Christ there will be, for some people and for some deeds, crowns awarded. Well, what's that about? Is it just simply to adorn a person? Is it just for their own pride? Well, there won't be any pride in heaven. Why will crowns be given? Seven of them at least are mentioned in the New Testament scriptures. Why will crowns be awarded at the judgment seat of Christ? Those crowns will identify those of the Lord's people who have been given particular place to rule in the kingdom. That's why people wear crowns, isn't it? It's to identify them as those who have dignity, those who have office. And so one of the results, one of the purposes of the judgment seat of Christ, it's, it's not to deal with any sins or anything like that. Praise God, that's all being dealt with. But the Lord is now going to reward the faithfulness of his believing people. I've just got a feeling, and I'm not, I promise you, I'm not trying to be flippant about the thing. I've just got a feeling that those who've been the most prominent amongst us down here will probably be the least when it comes to the kingdom. The Lord's rewarding faithfulness. And I'm glad about that. I know brethren and sisters. You know brethren and sisters. Who, who quietly and meekly and humbly have worked away for the Lord in whatever he gave them to do. For, 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 for tens of years. 
And the names were never in the magazines. And the names were never known outside of the immediate area. But praise God, there's a register being kept in heaven. And the Lord knows it all. And one day he'll review it. And one day he'll reward it. So believers like you and me, who have no difference in status when we're down here, once we get to glory, there'll be believers who are given crowns. And they will have positions of particular dignity in the government of the millennial kingdom of God. You say, well, if that's the case, um, where will we be? Uh, after we've gone to heaven and we've had the judgment seat of Christ, do we come back to earth? Well, I would think that the scripture is fairly clear on that. I would be fairly emphatic on that. That the answer is no. We're a heavenly people. And so the puzzlement comes in. Well, if the Lord is here on earth and we're in heaven, then what's all this about the bride and the groom? Because surely we wouldn't just be stowed away in heaven as a bride while he's down here. Well, now we'll just read the scripture together and it will give us the, uh, the lead in in the will of God to our meeting tomorrow evening, if we're spared. I want us to read a couple of scriptures with you as we finish. And the first of them is in John chapter 1. John's Gospel chapter 1. John 1 verse 43 The day following Jesus would go forth into Galilee and findeth Philip and said unto him follow me Now Philip was of Bethsaida the city of Andrew and Peter Philip findeth Nathanael and said unto him We have found him of whom Moses in the law and the prophets did write Jesus of Nazareth the son of Joseph And Nathanael said unto him Can there any good thing come out of Nazareth? Philip saith unto him, Come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming to him, and said of him, Behold an Israelite indeed, in whom is no guile. Nathanael said unto him, Whence knowest thou me? Jesus answered and said unto him, Before that Philip called thee, When thou wast under the fig tree, I saw thee. Nathanael answered and said unto him, Rabbi, thou art the Son of God. Thou art the king of Israel. Jesus answered and said unto him, Because I said unto thee, I saw thee under the fig tree, believest thou? Thou shalt see greater things than these. And he said unto him, Verily, verily, I say unto you, Hereafter ye shall see heaven open, and the angels of God ascending and descending, upon or around the Son of Man. And the third day there was a marriage in Cana of Galilee. Now just mark those words at the end of chapter 1. Hereafter ye shall see heaven open, and the angels of God ascending and descending around the Son of Man. Revelation chapter 19. A little reading there just to finish the meeting tonight. Revelation chapter 19, verse number 11. John says, And I saw heaven opened. So now, we'll deal with this in more detail as the Lord gives us help tomorrow evening at the start of the meeting. Uh, but just in case you can't be here, let me take just a few seconds to sum the thing up. The Lord Jesus speaks to Nathaniel at the end of John chapter 1 and he speaks to him as a representative of the nation when it's restored. Notice he said of Nathaniel, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom is no guile. Check your concordance. You will find that the root of that word for guile is the word for Jacob. Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom 
is no Jacob. Remember that experience Jacob had? Those dealings that God had with him? Thou worm Jacob. Thou shalt no more be called Jacob. Thou shalt be called Israel. A prince with God. Complete change of character. A complete change of things. And that was, he was the father in that sense of the nation. And so now, the Lord sees Nathanael and he says, Behold an Israelite indeed, in whom the traces of Jacob are gone. Israel restored. The confession comes from the mouth of Nathanael. Rabbi, thou art the son of God. Thou art the king of Israel. That will be the confession of Israel in the day to come. And the Lord said, Hereafter you will see heaven open. The angels of God ascending and descending around the Son of Man. So now this is a millennial scene that the Lord is describing in John chapter 1. It's a millennial scene. And as John is given that millennial vision in chapter 19 of Revelation, he says, I saw heaven opened. Heaven was opened very briefly when the Lord Jesus was baptized. It closed again. Heaven was opened very briefly again in Acts chapter 7 when Stephen was stoned to death and lifting up his eyes he saw heaven open and Jesus standing. But it closed again. But here in Revelation chapter 19 the fulfillment of that which we've read in John chapter 1 when the Lord Jesus returns to the earth to establish his kingdom, the heaven will open and it will not close again. So in the regeneration, when the heavens and the earth are remodeled for the millennial reign of Christ, one of the key features of the millennium is this, that heaven will be open. Men on earth will be able to look into heaven. They will see on earth a glorious city, Jerusalem, Zion, the city of the great king. But when they look into an open heaven, they'll see another city, the new Jerusalem, the heavenly Jerusalem. And they will see that city. That's where you and I will be. That'll be our home. That will be, if you like, the palace city. And Nathaniel was told, you're going, to see the, you're going to see the angels of God ascending and descending around the Son of Man. As he comes down and back up, as he comes down and back up, so he will be surrounded by an adoring host of angels. What a sight. He's the King of Kings and he's the Lord of Lords. Yes, he's God, but he's forever a man. The Lord Jesus has taken humanity into heaven. And, may, and, and, the, and in that earth, in that millennial scene, they will see him as a glorified man. In that sense, he'll be in one place at one time. How wonderful to think that in the course of a day of time in the millennial kingdom, the king will come forth and he'll move amongst his subjects. No bodyguards. No. The angels are not there for a bodyguard. They're there as a, as a retinue. They're there as his servants. He'll not need bodyguards. He'll not need cordons. He'll not need secret service agents. For the first time there'll be a monarch. He's king of kings and lord of lords. And he will move absolutely freely amongst the subjects of his kingdom. And at the end of another day, go back to his palace. Back to his bride. Wonderful, isn't it? Do you really believe you're going to be there? Maybe tomorrow evening, with the help of God, we can look at it a little further. An open heaven, and us resident in that glorious city. But remember the practical point, please. In Isaiah chapter 2, the practical point was this. A vision of glory. Tremendous vision of things to come. 
But the prophet has to turn and open his heart to God and confess that the people are not morally fitted for the whole thing. We're going to have it, but God's got to deal with them to bring them into moral alignment with what is going to be. If Israel is going to be glorified, and they are, how much more are we? So how much more responsibility falls upon me tonight and upon you to consider our moral state in the light of the glory that is yet to come? We trust God will give us help and bless us well tonight. Shall we pray?